Welcome everyone to podcast number 83. My name is Kermit Whittle and I am one of the co-hosts for this evening's podcast. We'd like to welcome everybody to this podcast, which is being broadcasted on unceded, unsurrendered Algonquin territory. Welcome everyone. We'd like to welcome Doreen Stevens back with us uh, on this podcast and Doreen has a beautiful song that she would uh, share with us that was something that her grandmother would sing. Thank you, Doreen. That was such a beautiful piece of music. The sounds were incredibly soothing. Uh, Our co-hosts tonight are Patsy Griffin from the Thunderbird Sisters Collective. Uh, I'd also like to invite uh, Rob Snickers, our other co-host tonight. Rob started up the Off-White Project. During this podcast, you will hear from uh, the Four Directions Poetry Corner, hosted by uh, Patsy Griffin and myself, and Rob Snicker will host the Settler's Corner. For those listening for the first time, you will uh, find our previous podcast on your podcast platforms. Podcast number 83 is based on a call to action. Number 83 of the TRC Truth and Reconciliation Recommendations, which state, We call upon the Canada Council for the Arts to establish as a funding priority a strategy for Indigenous and non-Indigenous artists to undertake collaborative projects and produce works that contribute to the reconciliation process. This podcast is an example of such a collaboration. Hi, today our special guest is Isaac Murdoch. I met Isaac about three years ago in New Jersey at an art exhibition. We've been friends ever since. Carr met Isaac when he was a guest speaker at the No Borders Art Festival in May for the COVID conversation. He is from the Serpent River First Nation community. 
He's an artist and storyteller. Isaac and his friends are building a language school and community on the land. We had a chat on Zoom a few weeks ago. Isaac was in his car. So here it is. Let's have a listen. We call upon the Canada Council for the Arts to establish as a funding priority the strategy for Indigenous and non-Indigenous artists to undertake collaborative projects and produce works that contribute to the reconciliation process. Now that's even if you believe in reconciliation, you know, like... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so, the big but, question. Yeah, but that's, that's what this is all about. Okay, well, I guess I can respond. Uh, um, you know, the world is suffering climate change. Uh, we're in a climate crisis. And I believe that we're in a, in a severe ecological collapse. And I also th think that we're in a people crisis as well. And so I think that arts plays a critical role in forming and shaping how society responds and how they act towards these issues. And so, you know, I've always been the one that says, if you're against something, then, you know, it creates an energy where there's, you're pushing against something and there's friction. <clears throat> but if you're for something, then it opens the door for everybody to participate and to be involved in what you're doing. So for example, if I'm for a river, then it becomes more powerful than being against, say, the Indian Act or say resource extraction. And so I think in today's times, we have to be very strategic in how we uh, produce our messaging. What are we trying to accomplish? What's our end goal? Do we wanna win or do we wanna be right? I think sometimes those are two different things. Um, right now, I believe that, that reconciliation um, is possible through the acts of working together for the environment. I don't think I don't think common society is going to reconcile with indigenous people uh, just because. I think that it's going to be the environment that's going to pull people together, um, okay. and and it's proven to be that way so far. Yeah. And so it's through only the environmental efforts that people have really got onto reconciliation. It's not really because of the land theft and the genocide and all of these things. It's because the, the indigenous people are needed right now. Uh, their traditional knowledge, their science, their disciplines of education. And so I believe that it's through the environmental work that's bringing people together, which isn't a bad thing. You know, we're going to take it. Um, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go for it. So I think that at this point in time, I think we're past the point of sort of reconciling with Indigenous people um, merely on the merit that it's the right thing to do. I think that, that if that was going to happen, that would have happened already. I think that governments and a majority of mainstream Canada has made it clear that, that pipelines, that mining companies, that nuclear energy is the way forward and deforestation. And so I think that that true reconciliation and plus land back, of course, is, is something that people aren't jumping on. So you're not having waves of farmers giving land back and you're not having government, you know, saying, how can we give land back? We're not even having government saying, you know, how can we, what can we do with this pipeline, you know? 
Um, so we know that it's it's true reconciliation is is not uh, it's not really for real. But what is real is people are uniting for the earth, and that's something that I'm all for. So I'm I'm of course willing to look past all of the other stuff and say, okay, great. If if this is what it takes, let's do this and let's let's work together. Let's get on board, and let's do what we can to save save the planet. And through that. I believe we will find true reconciliation. You can talk about the language school, the, the fact that you have now established a building, right? Right. And, and yes. how, how that vision, how that vision looks to you, where, where that's going. Like it's, ama it's amazing because part of this uh, call out is collaboration. So right. uh, between the non-Indigenous and Indigenous. So I've, I've always felt like you know, there's a strong connection between, um, you know, indigenous education and the environment. You know, because when you look at indigenous education, it goes back tens and tens of thousands of years. Yeah. And so, our, you know, indigenous people studied the land, they studied the plants, they studied the stars, they studied the moon, they studied the animals, <clears throat> and that was their their way of life and can you just imagine after, you know, just eons of, of learning this stuff, just, just how much traditional knowledge is there. And so it goes back, if you were to look at a timeline, it goes back tens and tens of thousands of years. And that's how they were able to sustain themselves on the land uh, without leaving a footprint because they understood the education on how ecology and economy was the same thing. There right. was no difference. And yeah. so they had the education to provide that, that sort of nourishment and that balance for the land. Yeah. And that's something that Western education hasn't been able to produce. And so when you look at uh, modern science, I mean, it only goes back about 500 years since Galileo, right? Right. And so it's, it's, just, a, a, it's just a seed really and so just to rely on modern science isn't good enough at this time. And so we know that we have to rely on indigenous knowledges from all over the world um, to try to figure this one out. And when I mean indigenous knowledge, I don't just mean brown people. I mean people that, that carry knowledge of the earth from their families that go back thousands of years, the Irish, the Scots, yeah. even the Brits, um, you know, people in Spain, people in Italy, you know, like you go all over the world, you have the elders and the old people understand the ecological blueprint on how to live here on this earth. Yeah. And, you know, without a garbage can. And so I think that traditional knowledge um, is really, really valuable at this time and that it, it is all over the place and that we got to start pooling um, this knowledge together and we got to start supporting each other and that's when diversity comes into play. Diversity is critical for our survival. We have to support each other's diversity. So I'm not so much anti-racist as I am pro-diversity, yeah. simply because I can be fighting the white supremacists and I can be fighting the white systems and I can be fighting the, all of the colonial structures, yeah. but instead I choose to build diversity and support other people and I believe that it's more real, it's more tangible, 
and you get better results because you're actually physically doing something with somebody that's actually really making a difference. Right. And it feel and it feels a lot better. And what's important about about diversity is you have culture, you have dances, you have language and ceremonies that are all rooted into the land. They're all rooted into the spirit of whoever those people are. And so for the Anishinaabek, my tribe, no manjanap kinege go anabe bomgija kindishnikaz, kinebe gukshabigaj wat and donjaba, kinoje and do dem, ambe machada, ambe, you know, nani boda, giken manan zina wan, gidenak nege wanina nen, wesiwag, the animals, the birds, the neshiwag, gigwag, the fish, nesiwan, the wind, nebe, the air, and Chinachigasawag, it's all being destroyed. Because they're, giken mana anik, kinak because the people are not understanding the natural laws. You know, mampi, ginak chinage, mampi, a king. Even the whole earth is being destroyed because of this. You know, abdek wibiskabing anishnabe ato nikia, neab kidapnanan kidakinan. You know, we have to pick up our our way of life and we have to um, go back to how we're to live on this earth. You know, and I think that's really, really important, you know. And so, you know, you know, like we, we, we come from this earth. You know, this is our, everybody comes from the earth. And so where language plays a part is that all of this information is coded in the language. You know, when you look at the word school, for example, you know, a very simple word, you know, is the word for school, which actually translates to the land is showing us something beaver house. I mean, if you were to translate it literally, that's what it would mean. The land is the land is showing us something beaver house. But it's much more profound than that. Because the beaver, of course, it 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 the design of the beaver house hasn't changed for, for forever because it's good enough. It's made its home out of earth and sticks, and it's good enough. It it doesn't have to change. And when you look at at our old systems that we had, the wigwam and the different lodges, they were good enough. They didn't have to change. And so when you look at where we are now in society, um, you know, how far are we willing to go? If we want to survive in a human race, there has to be some sort of a change in, in how we're thinking and what we're believing. And language has the, has the capability to do that because it gives us another lens to look through. And most of the, the languages on the earth are earth-based. So when you look at some of the Celtic languages, they're all earth-based. When you look at, uh, for example, Chinese, completely earth-based. When you look at, uh, you know, a lot of the African languages, earth-based, or Australian, or wherever you go, anywhere in the world, they're all tend to be earth-based. Right. And so the languages, they give us another lens to look at the world differently. And that's why languages are so important because 
to give us another belief system and value system to move forward with. And so, of course, at Nimki Ajbikong, there's a collective of us that have decided to make language and life on the land a priority. And uh, we live out there. We have young people living out there. We have elders living out there. There's families living out there. And it's a way for us to connect to the land and to the language because we know that, you know, hard times are coming and we have to prepare. And we also have to be examples. And uh, that's not easy because as soon as you're an example, everybody wants to beat you up. And so, oh, up there too, that's right? up there too. And, and so, and so, you know, yeah, we're but, preparing. We have, <laughs> but we have to keep going. We have to, um, you know, present ourselves in a good way, in an ethical way. We have to be responsible and, and have a moral compass and how we move forward. Uh, you know, because this is a collective effort of people. And, uh, you know, so we, we've made a solid team. We surrounded ourselves with people that, that can do things. I've always been the person that is very limited in what I can do. So I surround myself with, with people that can do things I can't do all the time. Um, you know, so uh, to go back to language, it's the center of our, of our camp. So it's really important that we produce fluent speakers in the next decade because they're going to be the climate leaders. And uh, that's going to be critical for, uh, you know, the survival of everything is to have people that really get it, you know, and understand it. And with that being said, when you look at the spectrum of change, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of people that are moving in the same direction. They're just at different parts of the spectrum. And so you have Isaac way over here, you have somebody else over here, you got lawyers over here, you got your frontliners over here, you got artists and storytellers over here. I mean, they're very, very different in what they're doing, but they're all moving in the same direction. And so I believe that it's important to not limit ourselves to believing our way is the right way, and that everybody has to follow what we do, but really more so build uh, relationships and bridges with everybody and to support everybody. And to say, you know what? I may not entirely agree with you, but that doesn't mean that I don't support you because you're moving that way too. And you know that's really important. So I think that we have to be polite. We have to use good manners. We have to support all of our all of the people's efforts moving forward, whether they make sense to us or not. Because do we want to win or do we want to be right? Yeah, yeah. Feel free to share uh, whatever you want. I think the um, okay. uh, there's some pretty cool stuff out there. Um, so feel free to share what you want. Okay. Uh, it's all there for the taking. Okay. And uh, you know, I just want to thank both of you so much. For, for being such a big support and for being, you know, just, uh, you know, like you don't have to do this, but you're doing it because you're just good people, you know, and you just want to make a difference. And so I commend you both of you for, for taking the effort to do this. I think it's really amazing. Um, thank you, Patsy, for always buying my art. <laughs> I'm, I'm, coming, right. I'm coming to get more. Look, look, look. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I always believe
have the art, I always feel that it's important to use it for fundraising for other people's causes too. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, so we, yeah. uh, you know, I donate a lot of my art to other people's causes uh, yeah. because it feels like it's the right thing to do. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and that's really, I think the essence of who we are is that we all just share and share and share and share and share and everybody's sharing yeah. because really the problem with the world is just greediness, right? Um, so if we're just sharing, 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 it kind of gets rid of that, that sickness or that, that dumminess of greediness. And so it's, you know, sharing is really, really important. I love doing fundraisers for people. I do it all the time. I actually uh, raise more money for them, for other people than I do myself. Uh, just simply, <laughs> you know, uh, just simply because I believe that it's important. Uh, I, I'm, I'm okay. Yeah. You know, as long as I'm okay, what does it matter? So again, I just want to thank both of you. So feel uh -huh. free to uh, to use any of the stories for the podcast. Um, you know, it's been an honor this morning to be here with you. Yeah. I have thank to you. head back Thanks into the driving bush. out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, of course. And uh, <laughs> we'll definitely have to do this again sometime. Oh, yeah, Isaac, again. and don't forget, yeah. if you're down this way, you have a place. You know what? We're going to make it happen. Yes. Okay, you two. Okay. Thanks so Stay much. Safe. Take good Thank care you, of yourself. Isaac. Let's see you soon. Bye, Isaac. Bye. Bye. Okay. Bye. 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 Miigwech, Isaac. Thank you. It's always great speaking with you. And if anyone would love to hear from Isaac, you can follow him on Facebook, Instagram. He has some great stories on YouTube. So I hope you all check them out. Welcome back to the Four Directions Poetry Corner. Before we get to my special guest today, I'd like to read you one of my poems. Walking in the bush. Great to wear my moccasins again when walking in the bush. My path cushioned and crunching as I walk gently over last year's fallen leaves. Beneath my feet, a carpet of trillium caressed my ankles. I can feel the heartbeat of Mother Earth vibrating through my whole being. Spruce trees reaching for the sky. White pines want to be my guide. The three young tamarack trees lead me down the three sisters' trail. Walking quietly as old growth trees carefully brush my long gray hair with their long finger-like branches reaching out for the long-awaited hug. Ravens lead the way, welcoming me back. Robins quietly serenading me, chickadees waiting in line for their turn for attention, blue jays screaming at me, turkey vultures silently watching me from above, crows warning everyone, Squirrels scattering in the distance, looking for the nearest tree to run up and hide. And then the water calls my name. The familiar course of the creek reassures me that I am not lost, that I am still on the sacred path. And now I'd like to welcome Canadian singer and songwriter Lynn Hansen to share some of her poetry. So what are you going to read for us today, Lynn? Okay, so I'm going to read a poem. It's called Windows. Windows? Windows. Oh, nice. I can almost feel you now, circling ever closer, 
the vibrations of your footsteps travel along the floor and through the paper-thin walls that separate us. You don't seem to mind that I don't care for your company, that I'm constantly on the move to rid myself of your visits, and yet somehow you always find me as the days get shorter. You, you ready your long shadow to block out my sun. I press my back hard up against the far wall, bracing myself for the inevitable fall, and curse this tiny room with no windows. So the, the poem that I actually just wrote this morning, and it's called Sunshine Opus. The air practically shimmers with the constant movement. So purposely busy, the cicada orchestra, relentless, a perfect soundtrack to your elegant nectar dance. I stand perfectly still except for the sweat that runs silently along my spine. I try not to blink so as not to waste even the tiniest fraction of this time when the many hues of blues can only tease melancholy. Thank you for this. Absolutely. And now I'd like to introduce uh, another amazing poet, E.N. Hill. And Ian, uh, we met a couple of weeks back up on uh, Parliament Hill um, when there was a uh, protest happening for the Mi'kmaq fishers out east. And um, Ian had uh, read this particular poem, and I think um, it's very, very interesting. I mean, during the, the very difficult times we're all going through, uh, there's uh, a lot of hope. In this particular piece. So uh, thank you. My name is Ian Hill. I identify as a black, queer, military veteran, social justice activist, spoken word artist, and minister in formation. When I wrote the piece, I was feeling depressed by the coronavirus, violence against black and brown people, violence against LGBTQ people, violence against the earth, the complete disregard of the environment and its indigenous protectors. My overwhelm led me to sit in silent meditation after days and days of voicing frustrations and grief to God. Then one morning I felt like spirit was calling me to break through my sadness by remembering all the ways that we as a people have made it through large scale tragedy and loss. I was reminded of humanity's habit of overcoming crisis and plagues environmental devastations, and all the things that life throws at us. At the end of my meditation, I journaled the words I'll soon be reading. I shared the poem at a church service not long ago, but when recently at the protest in support of Mi'kmaq in Ottawa, I felt moved to share the poem as a symbol of hope and solidarity between Black folks and Indigenous peoples. These were the words I shared. This isn't the first time we face disease, systemic violence, and preventable death with black and brown people bearing the brunt. This isn't the first time the government has given financial bailout to corporations instead of households, economic health over human beings in the forefront. This isn't the first time a leader lacking compassion and competence has torn apart families and deepened countries' divides. This isn't the first time well-meaning white folks have witnessed disproportionate suffering among non-whites, and yet they still act in surprise. This isn't the first time capitalists have exploited and profited off of the sick, the disabled, the elderly, and poor people's pain. 
This isn't the first time religious extremists have used global crisis as an excuse to curse and damn the most marginalized in God's name. But the God I know is all loving and this won't be the last time divine power stimulates world healing and triumphant turnaround. This won't be the last time collective hope, faith reaching back through generations will be needed to plant futures in solid ground. This won't be the last time our individual voices, individual votes, individual efforts will contribute to making justice true. Reach out with our hearts and minds instead of our hands. We got this, y'all. Just keep holding on to faith. Keep holding on to love and never let go. Peace. Thank you so much, Ian, for uh, joining us on this podcast, and we look forward to hearing more poetry from Ian. I would like to share this piece of music, Solidarity We Bleed, with everyone, and I would like to thank the Just Voices Activist Choir for joining me, and Marion DeVries and Patricia Venels for the vocal arrangement.
Snicker here. I'm the settler in this collective. And now a short poem titled The Heisenberg Effect. That is a term from quantum physics, also known as the uncertainty principle. The Heisenberg Effect. They say that the observer affects the experiment. Your mere presence alters the state. So how can you see your own true self? How do you know your effect on others? Where does bias end when you look past yourself? What do you bring into that vision? What do you carry, implicit and hidden? What fears block the faces of others? What falsehoods do you invest in their hearts? What schemes and what hates do you place in their minds when you don't know them, but know only their kind? Welcome to Settler's Corner. I'm Rob Snicker, a.k.a. The Unknown Settler. Here in the corner, we invite non-Indigenous artists to discuss their art and issues of decolonization, privilege, and reconciliation. Today, we're going to be talking with Petra Halkus, an artist, an independent curator, and art writer. She has earned a BFA, MA, and in 2001, a PhD from the Amsterdam School for Cultural Analysis. She has lived and worked in Ottawa since 1983. Her paintings are in the City of Ottawa Collection, the Canadian Aviation Museum, 
and in many private collections. She is an author and has written many catalog essays and articles for art magazines, as well as presenting papers at national and international conferences. RIA, Research in Art, is a voluntary artist initiative organized and curated by Halkus and her husband, Renee Price. The RIA program includes exhibitions, salons, and study groups. It is at one of these discussion groups where I first met Petra. So I'd like to invite uh, Petra onto the show. Hi, Petra, how are you? Hi, Rob, I'm fine. Thanks for the introduction. Well, you're welcome. And thank you for all of the wonderful things you've done in your own home, bringing a lot of artists together. I wonder if you could tell our listeners uh, a bit about yourself and your background and heritage. Um, yeah, well, you, uh, you did a good job there. But uh, um, what would you like to know, actually, that isn't currently going to take me like four hours to explain? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I understand that you were uh, born and raised in the Netherlands. And with that, you, you bring that background with you here to Canada. And I think you were in Winnipeg for a while. So I guess I'm just interested in that. This section is called Settler's Corner. So we are looking at uh, non-Indigenous artists talking about their art experience. And we will be looking at issues of identity and culture and colonial thinking and privilege. So you tell us a little bit about where you came from and, and maybe some of your experience uh, in understanding indigenous peoples. Right. Uh, yes, I, I do uh, come from the Netherlands. I was born in The Hague just right after the war and I grew up there. I came to Canada when I was 21. And of course we learn everything we know in our childhood really. And so maybe it is kind of interesting uh, to go back there because I actually have a very clear memory of hearing about Indians, <laughs> especially about the schools. We heard about residential schools. It was about in, I think, grade four or five. We were taught by nuns. I was in an in a elementary school that was a parochial school um, in a working class neighborhood. We learned not about, not a lot about science or anything, but a lot about religion, which I found very interesting. And I loved all the nuns and all the teachers and all the priests. And I just thought they were all wonderful. And everything they said was absolutely true, of course. So here I heard about the wonderful work that the nuns were doing in Canada with the Indian people, because they really, you know, had to learn a lot. They, they didn't even know how to read and write those children and they were never taught, they never went to school. So the, the nuns and the, the Catholics there, you know, they built these schools and they took the children and so that they could all learn and grow up to be good, good citizens, I guess. I don't know, whatever it was, it was very good. It was all very, very good. You know, I was really with it. I thought these nuns were doing a great job. And then, of course, there, there was an, also another image I had as a child of Indigenous people. 
and that came from the school book, from the uh, novels, the, the stories we read, and they were a lot of them were translated from German, from Karl May. So we got our own Irons Oak, which means um, Eye of the Eagle, and we learned about these fantastic things that they could do, that Indians could do, you know, like I especially remember going through the woods and discovering the enemy and uh, being able to walk through without making any sound, not even, you know, one little crack of a little wood or a, or a leaf. They, they were so good at that, you know, things like that. Anyway, it was just all pretty ridiculous, right? And, uh, but that's, that's the kind of impressions I probably still had. Like, like I said, I think we learn everything when we're in childhood. I mean, not literally, but, you know, there's a big basis there, and it's hard to unlearn, as you know, probably. So, yeah, I got a lot of that until I came here in Canada, and, and that was, um, um, you know, a difficult time because it's always hard to resettle in a different country, I, I think, and especially when you're young and crazy like that. And I was just married and <laughs> we came to, we ended up in Winnipeg and um, I had barely been there for about six months. And um, I had been teaching in Holland, I had a teaching degree um, for a year. Then I got married, it all went very fast. And then we went to Canada, it was all a big adventure. And then all of a sudden I found myself teaching grade two in Winnipeg, in uh, Centertown, Winnipeg. Uh, had a lot of children in my class and I had no idea what to do with that. There were indigenous children there. And, you know, it was difficult to figure out what to do. And I didn't really have enough help. I didn't really, I wasn't really in the kind of frame of mind at the time of Figuring it out for myself, there was just too many, many um, changes. It was a real culture shock. So I, I feel, yeah, I really didn't know what to do a lot of the time. You know, there were two boys, for instance, that I remember. They didn't always get bathed very well. Um, and so the kids would, you know, make remarks and walk around them and point at them. Well, what do you do? I really didn't know. <laughs> other than, you know, talking to the principal and then there would be a social worker, but, you know, it really didn't give me much help on how to deal with these things. So I do remember that. That's certainly a, a very personal history that you've shared with us. And I, I know this, we're trying to create a safe space here to share ideas and feelings. I mean, this is not an academic uh, environment, nor is it a hard journalism environment. We, we would like artists to share their feelings, to reflect, do some introspection, and build some relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous artists. And I know you currently, and in the last few years, I, I know your philosophy and outlook, and it is certainly, you've learned a lot since your first days in Winnipeg, in your childhood in the Netherlands, and it's manifest in the type of collaborations and, and the, the environment you've created for artists to talk about these sensitive issues. That's one reason we certainly wanted to have you on this show. So uh, maybe I'll piece this together with the, the spirit of the overall podcast. It's called 
podcast number 83. Why is it called that? It's because it's based on the Truth and Reconciliation Call to Action number 83, which asks the Canada Council to strategically fund collaborations of Indigenous and non-Indigenous artists to further the process of reconciliation. So I guess knowing your past a bit and knowing who you are now, could I ask you, uh, how do you believe that such collaborations can assist the process of reconciliation? Yes, they can, I'm sure. I, you know, I think a lot of these things, the, the way things happen in society is, is, is very organic and very uh, slow. And we can help push it along, but these are so sensitive and, and there are so many people involved so that you can think, oh, you know, we can do that. We should all get together and we should, you know, all get along and fine, you know, why don't we do more? But it, it isn't that simple. I've seen so many wonderful things happening lately and that, is only, that only happened now because it took so long, you know, for us to unlearn and to, to figure out how to let the indigenous speak or people speak for themselves. Um, it, it took a long time, but I, I think it is wonderful to see now because like, like I said, you know, when I came here in 1967, that's what I found and, and that's how I did it in. It was just, you know, it all came from Europe in the first place. But yeah, it, it was so, so different. And it, it changed so slowly. I really didn't see anything happening all throughout the 70s and 80s maybe it was just me but um but i mean i've only really seen the, the huge change in the last maybe 20 years or so and then you hear people indigenous people speaking and learn more from them about them and i think that's been so important what i'm trying to say is it wasn't because of us that this happened but it's just it was because of them that it, it happened. They spoke out and, and they they let us know we have we needed to hear from them. We finally let them, you know. If yeah, I, I think there's been a real change, and I'm I'm just thinking of CDC programs like Unreserve yes. uh, that I really learned a lot from and heard from, and and that's all quite recent. Yeah, I think there are wonderful things happening there. So that's all great. Now, if you say, well, you know, we should get all together and do all this, it's not just up to us. We can say that as allies, but it is very much um, a two-way street, right? And we have to listen. We have to keep listening and, and being open. It's too easy for us to just say, well, we want to know everything about you and... Um, that is really a colonial attitude again. Uh, it is the Western way. I'm, I'm thinking of David Garneau's article, um, Imaginary Spaces of Conciliation and Re Reconciliation, where he works against that, but that, that it is a colonial attitude that we do as Westerners tend to want to know and have everything seen and possessed actually. So it's not the right way to do that and if there is a there is something that you'll you'll never really know about other the other and their culture and there should be a space that is not open to everyone else. So 
I think that is a really good thing to remember when we talk about being allies. Uh, and there is a kickback from indigenous people sometimes about allies. And I think we should really pay a lot of attention to that and learn from it. So, that, and, and that said, it, 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 I do want to reach out, and, but I haven't been able to do it much. I, yeah, I mean, I, Carmel is great. Um, yes. She reaches out and, and she, she listens to us and, 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 we, and, and corrects us and tells us what we're not doing right, which is good. You know, but uh, I don't. I'm not. I don't feel that I, that area has been um, terribly diverse. But well, I. But it's I for that reason, really. I, I people come to me. It's really good, but I'm not going to push people and pigeon and, and pigeonhole them. I, mean, I I don't like that kind of tokenism. I hear you very clearly. I I mean, you've said a lot, and it brings a few things to mind being analytical and controlling and some ego issues that we have in our outlook can be maybe not in line with some of the other principles that um, Indigenous people communicate with and commune with, uh, listening and everyone getting their say. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think there are many lessons that their culture can teach us. Yes. And it involves certainly, first of all, a bit of trust and some of our our attitudes are based on insecurity if we can create that climate of trust that i'm learning more and more from uh, as you mentioned carmel whittle who's the lead on this project and patsy griffin my other collaborator some of their ways of thinking and discussing and their use of time and their use of how they perceive process versus final product these things can really change the way an artist looks at things and the way we look at ourselves. So I'd like to say, in, you're a little bit humble about what you've done with Ria, in my mind, because I think you've created that kind of climate where people feel safe op and open to discussion and open to listening. And I think that's an underpinning of what we are trying to do here with Settler's Corner, that if we can create the right space for people to come together and listen and learn from each other, Indigenous and non-Indigenous artists, and actually work in co-creation, then we can create some personal bonds and relationships. And I think to me that is the ultimate goal of any of this, because when we know someone and we know them a little bit personally, it creates the trust and we learn so much from each other. And it's a lot of fun too. Okay, Petra. Now comes time in Settler's Corner where we like to ask what we call the two cheeky questions. The questions are, how white do you think you are? And how white do you think? <laughs> okay. Well, as I said, a lot goes back to childhood and how you, you were brought up and it's hard to unlearn those things. I think I'm very white and I... And then in childhood, there were barely any other people than white people, for one thing. But the nuns, and I go back to the nuns again, um, I remember the little circle of all colored people from all different colors, hand in hand, and how they were all equal in the eyes of God. And I certainly remember that. 
And so, you know, and I, it was simple. I mean, I was basically colorblind, or so I thought. Yeah, until I, um, and yeah, I actually married someone from Bangladesh, and I have children who are not white. Uh, never thought about it very much uh, until the last 20 years or so. So how, uh, what, what was your second question? Uh, how white do you think? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, you'll have to explain that to me. I, I find that confusing. <laughs> there you uh, go, back to well, you. Well, well these questions, of course, they're, they're meant to be a bit tongue-in-cheek, but also they're very open-ended for people to take whatever direction they want. I guess how white do you think you touched on in previous conversation about how uh, Western thinking is very goal oriented and very analytical and very time driven and you know I guess the idea of binary logic and yeah. the idea of uh, some kind of adversarial process that we see in in arguments in court and. Mm -hmm. We know that certainly the indigenous legal system is very different from our European uh -huh. idea of legal system. And so I guess that question will will be touching upon those type of things, but it's maybe it's a question that's not even so important to answer or answer completely, but to think about. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, I, I have been thinking about it. I wasn't quite sure. I, I really don't really know. <laughs> I I don't think I'm, you know, I think I've learned a lot through my reading and my and my discussions with people uh, all throughout my life. And uh, yeah, I can't be too hard on myself in that respect. Um, I'm just always pushing for looking at all the, looking at things from all sides and uh yeah the whole binary thing is really yeah i can't i can't say i'm not completely of course because there are things that i is just so ingrained but um well, I, i've learned it, a lot let me put it that way well i i certainly I, well i know you somewhat and indeed i i, I know your open-mindedness and uh, your receptivity to thinking and new ideas so yeah i remember one description of of western thought and compared to so-called eastern thought it was martin gardner uh, who wrote about mathematics he, he wrote about this in terms of you well being an artist you could look at it this way what is the difference between looking at a painting and looking at a sculpture uh -huh. and you could say when you look at a painting you can back up and move from side to side a little bit and he would say that's a western way of perceiving things but an eastern way of perceiving things would be more like looking at a sculpture mm -hmm. where you go around and around you can get closer further away and circle the sculpture maybe one direction maybe the other yeah and he that author explained that this is more of a, an eastern way of coming to an idea of the truth. And I think I see a little bit of that in, in my limited understanding of indigenous way of thinking. And then also there are certain spiritual components of, uh, of indigenous thinking and belief and many cultures that do not take this scientific binary logic, uh, Euclidean, Newtonian type of 
thinking, but it's mm-hmm. been it's been ingrained in me my whole education, and it's even ingrained in the language I use. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it is. I th- I think we we would have a hard time completely um, getting rid of it. Um, also, it has brought us the scientific process that we cannot really um, complete. <laughs> you know, can. No, there's there is benefit to it yeah. as well, but uh, I think it must be in balance with other exactly. forms of wisdom. And to find the balance, that's the time we are in now, and we really have to work at it. And yes, there is so much we can learn from indigenous cultures and other cultures. Yeah, and, and I think there is more of an interest and a realization, you know, how much these people are in tune or were in tune before we came around um, with nature and that we need it so badly now, that kind of attitude. Indeed. So, yeah. And I, I'm i reminded of um, another colleague. I know uh, uh, Jocelyn Wabano-Ayatil, who is a knowledge keeper, and she reminds uh, non-Indigenous people that you all were originally indigenous and had your spiritual beliefs and stories and she might say your knowledge and your medicine bundles and you've forgotten them you've lost them mm-hmm. and certainly with colonialism and capitalism and many of us have lost our own distant heritage in connection with the land that buzzer indicates the end of this episode of settlers corner Here at Settler's Corner, we offer Settler Conversion Therapy, decolonizing one settler at a time. Stay tuned for more discussions with interesting non-Indigenous artists, and also look out for the live Zoom event featuring panelists from past shows and new guests. Thank you very much. This brings us to the end of podcast number 83 for this week. We have a few people to thank. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Patsy Griffin and Rob Snicker. We want to thank the Canada Council for the Arts in um, First Digital um, Original and CBC Radio. We would like to thank Isaac Murdoch, uh, Doreen Stevens, Lynn Hansen, Ian Hill, and Petra Hawkes for all of their contributions in making this podcast uh, wonderful and full with discussions and people can come back and hear them uh, again and again through uh, your particular podcast platform. Thank you all for joining us today and um, please uh, send us your comments, uh, podcast83 at hotmail.com. Mm-hmm.